Good to see all of you. I hope you've had a good week. Please turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9. Has anyone ever told you something that you counted on and it didn't pan out like you thought it would? Right? We've all been there. We've all been there. We're all familiar with misplaced hope. Putting our hope in something that doesn't really turn out like we think it should. Or think it would. Or think it would. Uh, or as it was sold to us. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. About having misplaced hope. And so we're going to be picking up in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through verse 14. He says this. Now even the first command covenant had regulations of divine worship and, and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables or the tables of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship but into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as our high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained an eternal redemption for the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, I pray this morning that you'll speak to us. And Father, help us to set our eyes and our hope on the right things. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to understand what was going on here. So that we can know where we're headed. And so thank you for what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we discuss misplaced hope this morning, we're going to be looking at the tabernacle. We'll be seeing the priestly work. And then we're going to look at the priestly work of Christ. 
And it seems like he's spending a lot of time through these last chapters talking about the priesthood and the work of the priest and what that means and sacrifices and all the things related to the law and the sacrifice for sins and the, and the uh, also the praise offerings and those things. Well, you have to, we have to understand who he's speaking to here. When he's writing to Israel, he's writing a letter to them to say, essentially, you guys have been trusting this. You've been trusting in the law and you've missed Jesus Christ. So he begins to go to the things that they have placed their hope in to show them how Christ is better. And so as we dive into some of this, we will see how he lays it out uh, as far as explaining who Christ was and what he was and what he was up to. The author is addressing Israel's hope. See, their hope was in the law. The hope was in obeying the law and following the law. And because God had given that to them, and that's what they knew. And so this was the first covenant. It had regulations concerning divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. And so if you go back, it showed them how they were to worship. It told them exactly what they were supposed to do. It told them exactly how it was to be done. Then there was a tabernacle that was built. And if you go back and read in Leviticus, if you want to find out about all that, you will find out the length and the width and the height and about all the rings that are covered in gold and all of the implements and how the, uh, the high priest had certain garments that he had to wear. And that all the jewels and the gems and the, and the implements that were in the holy place versus the holy of holies. In the holy place there was, and we're going to get into this in a minute. There was a lampstand that we know today as the menorah. Jesus said he was the light of the world. So it's a picture of Christ. There was also the showbread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And so all of these things were pointing to Christ even back then. They didn't understand that. They just saw that as part of what was instructed to them. And then as they would uh, celebrate the Passover, if you study and, and know a little bit about the Passover, the interesting part of that is the, the bread that they would use, the unleavened bread came in a three-section bread. The ends were, were removed. And the center one was broken. Like Jesus as the second person of the Trinity was broken for us. And so all of these things were symbolic. And led to Jesus Christ. The outer tabernacle was called the holy place. The first veil was there. It contained what well, we talked about. The lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. And then there was an inner which is the holy of holies. That was the second veil. The golden altar of incense. This is when you get in there to the place where only the high priest could go. There was a golden altar of incense that was made where incense was offered to, uh, to please and appease God. And so there was also the Ark of the Covenant. A lot of us know the Ark of the Covenant. I've heard of it. Sometimes the first time we've heard of it is from the movie. But the Ark of the Covenant was a box covered in gold who had rings on either side that was never meant to be touched. 
It has staves that would go through those rings, and that's how it was supposed to be carried. And God gave specific instructions not to touch it, or you would die. One day, this is a true story recorded in Scripture, they were going down the road, they had it on a cart. Was not how it was supposed to be carried. They're already in violation. And they hit a bump, and the thing began to tip and fall. And a guy reached out to stop it so that it didn't fall over. And when he touched it, he died on the spot. Well, why? He had good intentions. He had the right heart. He was trying to do it because he violated God's word. And so it was this box. And inside the box was a pot of manna. Now, manna, for those of you who don't know, was how God sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. Every morning they would wake up and their oatmeal was out in the yard. And they would go and they would gather that up inside this box, the Ark of the Covenant, that Harrison Ford found, I'm just kidding, is a pot of that manna. Inside is the rod of Aaron. Now, if you go back and you look at, remember when Moses was told to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go and... There was this whole thing. Why would you pick me? I can't talk good. And Why don't you pick Aaron? He can talk good. Isn't that funny? We can always find somebody that we think does a better job than us. I don't know why that is. But it is. We always compare ourselves to other people. But his rod was in there. And his rod, which was a walking stick, he had, uh, it had budded. And so that's in there. Probably one of the most famous items in the Ark of the Covenant was the tablets that God wrote the Ten Commandments on and gave to Moses. You know, this is not the 15 that were five broke and they said Ten Commandments. That's the other movie. God gave Ten Commandments and they're in there written by the finger of God on rock and placed inside this ark. Above the ark were the cherubim if you want to see a little bit about cherubim, read, go back and read in Isaiah. I believe it's 9. It starts in verse 6 where it talks about that they're flying around. They have six wings. With two they cover their face. With two they cover their feet. With two they fly. And they cry, holy, holy, holy. And so they're, they're fashioned. So God showed them the, the crafters of the ark. These men who the Spirit of God had fallen on. To build this in that way. And so they're covered in gold as well. The Ark of the Covenant itself is the mercy seat of God. It's the place where God came down and sat as the sacrifices were being made to him. To cover the sins of the people. Not remove them. It only covered them. And so this tabernacle was made and fashioned <laughs> And as you think about the, the detail and the implements involved in dealing with sin, we know how important it is to God. That, you know, I learned this is an old, uh, when you're, my, to my evangelist people out there, people that love to share Christ, 
this was a, uh, a great um, illustration of how to understand how much you mean to God. You know, when we get when you buy a house, you get it appraised, right? Almost always it appraises for what you're willing to pay. Have you ever noticed that? Usually they, they, a good realtor will make sure the contract is in the hand of the, the appraiser. And so what something, the value of something is what somebody's willing to pay for it. Well, if that's the, the rule of measure, how valuable are we? What price has been paid for you? If that's how we determine value, God sent his own son to die for you. You've been purchased with a price. You've been purchased with the blood of Christ. What value did he place on you? So often we just think, yeah, we're just whatever. You know, yeah, God loves us because he's got to. You know, and then I threw out about two, three months ago, the idea that God actually likes you. And that it was actually harder for people <laughs> than the fact that God loved them. And so, but God paid the price of his one and only son for you. Because he loves you. That's the value that he placed on you. Isn't that cool? Or not? Very cool. <laughs> That's the value placed on you. We don't think of ourselves that way. We think of valuable things that have to be treated preciously or put behind cases and and kept from being stolen and protected. You know what? We're in the hand of God who can touch us. And so we have the tabernacle in all the details. That's where worship happened. Worship wasn't an issue of going to church or how you lived. It was prescribed back then. But then we see the priests. So we've seen the tabernacle. We're going to see the priestly work. The priest performed divine worship in the outer tabernacle continually. They were doing it continually. It wasn't once. They did it all the time. Because they had to. It was insufficient. Where when Jesus did it, he died once for all men. He satisfied God once with his shed blood. The high priest entered once a year with the blood to offer sacrifice for sins. For himself and the people, repeated event did not remove sin. But you know, here's the deal. That high priest had to offer it for himself also. Jesus did not. Jesus offered it for us only because he was perfect. And so he gives the contrast to priests. Here at this point. The Holy Spirit had not yet disclosed the way to the holy place. While the outer tabernacle was standing. See that was a symbol of the time. Y'all remember what happened on the cross? When the veil was rent from top to bottom. From God to us. He came to us. And allowed us to enter into the holy place. So this place. That only the high priest could go. That was in the very presence of God. Who they actually had. If you go back and study Leviticus. They had bells. Sewn onto the garment. To the hem of the garment. 
There was fruit on the bottom. Do y'all know what the fruit was on the on the bottom? Pomegranates. That's right. And they had a rope around their ankle. So should the bell stop ringing, in other words, God killed him in his presence because he was unworthy, they could yank the body out of the Holy of Holies. There is where we are allowed to go because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. How dare we ever take it lightly? Look at what it look at, look at what it took to be in his presence. So the gifts and sacrifices offered, they were not able to make the worshiper perfect in conscience. See, they focused on the flesh and not the person. They focused on the flesh and not the person. We think of ourselves by what we look like in the mirror, don't we? Some of us wish we looked different, better, younger, faster. I sound like the $6 million man. We can rebuild him. <laughs> the young people are going, what is he talking about? <laughs> you can get an action figure where you can look through the back of their head with his bionic eye. You all know that? No. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, were, they weren't that much then, but they're a lot more now. <laughs> But here's the thing. They, these priests, were not sufficient, but Jesus was. They weren't sufficient, but he was. He was completely sufficient in all that he did. They deal with the flesh, but he dealt with the conscience. So they would just continue sinning like there's no big deal. Why don't we keep doing this? Everything's fine. What's the problem? Because there was no conscience. But when the Holy Spirit came, one of his ministries is to convict us of sin. So when you sin, do you feel conviction? Or do you just feel like everybody ought to just kind of suck it up? Are you being convicted? That's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you're saved, you have conviction in your life. If you don't have conviction in your life, maybe you don't know it. Listen, my job is to tell you the truth. Sometimes, do we always like the truth? Mm-hmm. No. How many of you have ever avoided the truth? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why? Here we're, we'll dig this out for just a second. I won't stay here too long. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Right? Trouble, right? Yeah. Self preservation? Anybody? The only reason to avoid the truth is we think we're safer away from it than in it. And the tr- and that is that a true statement? No. Because here's the fact. Let's say that I did the wrong thing. Let's say that I uh, stole a car. And somebody asked me, did you steal, steal the car? And I say, no, I didn't, when I actually did. 
Now I have two problems instead of one. The fact that I stole the car and all the reasons that go with that and the fact that now I'm untrustworthy and even resolving that becomes extremely that much harder because I can't own it and say this is why. Well yeah, I did technically steal the car because my wife was going into labor and I had to rush her to the hospital and my car, I got locked out of my car and yours had keys and it was hanging. Oh, well maybe we can work that out. Oh, no, I just wanted it. That's different, but it's still the truth. But it's, if it's an honest answer, you have to, we have to give it. And so we sometimes hide from the truth. We sometimes run from it because of kind of self-centeredness or trying to protect ourselves. <coughs> but here's the good news. We're told here in these verses that there's a time of reformation coming and he is about to reveal it. They were going through this time where it was all about the sacrifice in the tabernacle and until the time of reformation, but it's coming. And he's about to share what that is. So this change where he talks about reformation, he's like, what you've been what you've taught and, and been taught and learned and all that and have relied on your whole life is about to change. And I think sometimes as Christians, we go through the same thing. We go through, when we come to Christ, it's a reformation, isn't it? But then sometimes when we walk with the Lord, we know things aren't working. You ever been there? You've been walking with the Lord and frustrated, having it not work out right. The harder you try, the worse it seems you fail. You're just exhausted all the time. And it just you just wonder, is this is what this is all about? And then when somebody comes along and shares with us the idea of moving away from self-effort into grace and walking in a relationship, it's very refreshing, but it's a change. And we as, as human creatures fear change. We're suspicious and we avoid it. And we don't know what it means. We want definitive things that we can count on and rely on where we know we can put our feet here. But many times Jesus said, get out of the boat and walk on things where they couldn't be defined. He wasn't walking on the water because he knew where the stones were. He was walking on the water because Jesus called him out to do that. And when Jesus calls you out to do that, you stand on solid ground. Especially if he is the rock. <laughs> so as we move, as they move from this idea, because remember who his audience was. This is the group of people, the nation who had put Jesus to death. And he's saying, you missed it. And so they not only have to say yes to Jesus, they have to say I was wrong, but then we have to say that too. We have to say I'm sinful and I have to, I have to turn to Christ to be saved. And so he's about to reveal it. We see Christ's priestly work and he, so he shows the work that Jesus did that was better than what they were trusting when Christ appeared, he appeared through the tabernacle that God had made. 
See the tabernacle that God had made. What is that? What tabernacle did God make? What are our bodies called? The temple of God, right? Where he dwells. What tabernacle did God make in Jesus' case? He wasn't made by Adam and or Adam and Eve. He wasn't made by Mary and Joseph. God made his body. Didn't he? Yes. That which was implanted in her was of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And so that tabernacle that God made, he appeared as a high priest of good things to come. Because, see, he no longer had to offer sacrifice for himself. So he entered through his own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats or cow ashes, by his own blood. See, the blood of bulls, goats, and cow ashes are insufficient for what Christ came for. They couldn't do it. The truth is they were never meant to do it. They were meant for us to come to an understanding that there's a sacrifice for sin. Even though this ain't it. <laughs> it's coming. And so when Jesus did that, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. See, after the cross, and after he spent 40 days here and he ascended to heaven, where did he sit down? On the right hand of the Father. In the very presence of God. That's the work of the high priest to be in the presence of God. You see how it was pictured? How we see the correlation between the tabernacle and Jesus? The blood of goats and bulls can sanctify the flesh. It was a covering. It wasn't a cleansing. Versus Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, offered himself to cleanse our conscience from dead works. Works meant, now what works were they doing? Their works were meant to be godly works. Their works were meant to be sacred works, if you will. Their focus was on work instead of on Christ. On the things they do. The church today is so afraid to tell you this because they think you're going to run out in sin. And you know, what does that say about the people we preach to? What does that say about the people who stand up here and preach to, the, to, the, to people today? Well, we can't tell them that because they're just going to go sin. You know what? The only, reason, the only person that would do that is somebody who's lost. Christians don't want to sin more. They don't. And if somebody is lost, and I free them to be lost by telling them the truth, maybe, just maybe, they'll see their need. See, God's word... <laughs> Tells us that the truth will set us free. And it absolutely will set us free. Can you imagine living your whole life trying to be good enough to get into heaven? Can you imagine? 
What if the rule was 10,000 and I hit 9999 and I missed it by one? What a sorry God that would be. But that's the rule. You missed it by one. The truth is, we've all missed it by one. The one, his name is Jesus. <laughs> and without him, we'll never make it. You'll never make it. You're never going to make it in this world and in the world to come. Can we go to heaven without Jesus? So once he saves us, does he save us under works that we just do for him and hope he's happy with and blessed because we're doing the right thing and we've got good behavior? Yeah. What does he save us unto then? He saves us unto himself. And we have to receive that in that same way. And the works that we do because we're in a relationship with him is the natural result. Like there's certain things I do because I'm married. And there's certain things I don't do because I'm married, right? Amen. Because I'm in a relationship. That's what we're trying to do is give people the actions without the relationship. It doesn't work like that. It's frustrating. Can you imagine being a single person living like they're married? That doesn't work. And I do not, I do not encourage this. Do not be a married person living like they're single. That don't work either. If I did that, I'd be eight feet under. Most people are six feet. Terry beat me down two more feet. And so Jesus enters the holy place having obtained eternal redemption. One of the reasons Jesus came was so that we could serve the living God. Isn't that cool? We have the ability to serve Him. Instead of the law. He came to cleanse us and free us. And instead, we want to embrace rules and regulations to deal with sin that's already been dealt with. It's already been dealt with. But if the, listen, if the enemy can chase, get us chasing around stuff that Jesus has already dealt with, he's won. Because we're not living in the victory that we have in Christ. He said, if I've set you free, you're free indeed. Listen, let me say this. We always, in church especially, we would look at it as a negative thing and say, man, I'm lost. That's not a negative step. That's a positive step. The enemy will say, oh, how bad you are. You're lost. You're sin-. The truth is, we're all born lost. We're conceived in sin. Nobody had to teach me as a baby to do the wrong things. It was natural. Amen. And took a strong hand to deal with that. <laughs> and that gets handed off to God after a certain age. And he has a stronger hand, I promise. So parents, don't sweat your kids. Their choices are not your responsibility. It's your responsibility to set the example of right things. And to introduce them to Christ. The rest is between them and the Holy Spirit. And so when we discuss misplaced hope, it's important that we put our hope in the right place, folks. 
Otherwise, we're just frustrated. So, to that end, give you three things to put this in your pocket. Realize that some of the stuff you're holding on to was meant only to prep you for something greater. And I cannot tell you, bless you, Stephen, I cannot tell you the amount of people that are tied to a negative event that happened in their life and they never moved past beyond it. This whole thing, somebody lied about me or they said this to me or they hurt my feelings. And now, my whole life is about that. Instead of taking the lessons from that and moving forward and learning from it and letting that be part of your equipping they identify with these things that happen. Or they have hurt somebody else deeply and it's hard for them to live with themselves about that. You know, it's, e- it, <laughs> it's not easy to forgive people, but sometimes the hardest person to forgive is yourself. Because we hold ourselves to higher, at least we think we hold ourselves to higher standards, except for the things we excuse that doesn't really hurt anybody. Except that it hurts our relationship with the Lord. It hurts us. But that's okay, it's us. I can do things to hurt me. You think that's a good idea? The only, re- the only way that could possibly be a good idea is if you don't matter to anybody. Anybody know someone in your family or a friend? That's doing things to hurt themselves and it hurts you and is tearing you up inside? Welcome. Now, try to flip that theory with the Lord again. Well, it's only hurting me. No, it's not. It's hurting all the people around you. It's not just you. And so, take the things that come in life. Good, bad, and different the high points and low points and learn from them. I've been through some very difficult things since being in ministry. I've had pastors take me aside and say, I'm afraid that I hurt you in this. And I said, the only way that could have hurt me is if I didn't learn the lessons that God had for me. And sometimes it's a good hurt. Maybe I needed it. See, godliness always pursues Christ regardless of the circumstances. That's what it means. But listen, you know what? I know nobody knows your story like you know it. And I know some of these things are really easy to say. And I know there's some hurt that's so deep that crossed every pot. You know, we, we want to talk about where you crossed the line. But sometimes there's people that have crossed seven lines. Like you gone way beyond that hurt us. But I want you to know this. Jesus knows what that feels like. Don't think you're the only one. The enemy will lie to you and tell you you're the only one. We're not to cling to anything but Jesus Christ. Don't cling to that stuff. Two. Sometimes when our entire life has been about trying to live good, it can be hard to surrender that effort to rest and solely engage in Him 
and let him lead us. Well, but if I do that, that means I don't do anything. Or that if I do, if I just trust him to lead me each and every day, then you know what about this and what about this and what about this? And I had I had that in my life. I'm going to tell you this is from experience. I used to pray, and I I had done some study and been to some classes, and they told me you know what I'm supposed to be praying for. And so I made sure I prayed for those things every night. So the Bible said. So I prayed for those and I prayed the same things every night. And I was frustrated in my prayer life. But I was following the word of God, right? Until one night, the Lord said to me, he said, are you done? Now, what do you really want to talk to me about? Because what they had become is a spiritual smokescreen so that I could protect my heart from being vulnerable to God. I'm sure none of you have ever done that. I'm sure I'm the only one. And when that happened, I changed my prayer. At first, I felt bad a little bit. Because I felt like I'd wasted that time. But as that thought came, God said no, because he drew closer. And when he draws closer, and he's correcting those things, that, that bad feeling doesn't stay. Because you're excited about where you are now. And so we have to let those things go. Well, but God doesn't speak to me. That's the other fear we have with that, right? But God doesn't speak to me. God will speak to you if you're willing to say yes and do what he asks you. He absolutely... Try it out. Try me. And if you actually do it, that's what we're supposed to do, what he leads us to. And he will lead us. Everything he leads us to will match here. We don't have to come up with this and try to do this, try to force you to do it. It comes out. This is the outflow of the relationship with the Holy Spirit. It manifests this. It's not a trick. So let him lead. Three. Jesus doesn't want us serving a set of laws. Well, I've got this list here, so now I'm going to do this. He died so we can serve him. He died to bring us so we can serve the living God. The Israel had begun to worship the ark and not the God of the ark. And I think sometimes as Christians, we worship our Christianity more than the God who died to save us. And so be careful. We have to be careful that we don't misplace our hope. He wants us free to serve him. Don't misplace your hope, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I was a boy. And I grew up with parents who liked to camp. Because I lived there, we camped too. In a tent, tent camping. And so I was, we were young, we were, I was, we were in the Rocky Mountains. And I decided, we were out gathering firewood for dinner. I decided to run down this little concrete thing, it was a culvert, 
thing. But in the Rocky Mountains, the culverts aren't 18 inches. They're like 12 feet. And there was a snow pole that was there. And so as I was running down the, uh, this thing, I grabbed the snow pole and I was going to swing out over this ravine. The snow pole came out and hit me in the head, knocked me out, and I fell all the way down, unconscious. By the grace of God, there was an EMT camping across from us at the other side. And I survived. (laughs) But when you put your hope in the wrong things, ladies and gentlemen, the results are devastating. Or they can be. Our hope is to be in nothing less but Jesus Christ. Don't hope in your work. Don't hope in the rules and regulations you think you understand from God's word. Put your hope solely in him. You know, it was really funny. We were, uh, you know, I had studied this and, and it's funny. When God starts working and speaking through, I just stayed with it. No matter what's going on. And I came to men's breakfast and we were a little short yesterday. We missed you guys that did not make it. But God had changed Dwayne's devotion to hope. He had no idea this was my title. I didn't tell him. God told him. That's what you want. You want God confirming. And as much as that confirmed me and what I was doing. Maybe I confirmed him too. And him hearing the voice of the Lord. When God changes what you're studying, it's a very unsettling feeling. Because you're kind of confident in the other. <laughs> so I didn't get it. It's going to rock your world a little. They're like, are you sure? Because you doubt yourself. But I went 24 hours prior to Right. So here's the thing. Misplaced hope presents itself as something that will not mislead you, but it's misleading you while it's doing that. Jesus has never done that for us. He has been faithful from day one because Jesus is our hope. And he does give us hope. Somebody brought a verse to me that showed me that the last time I made that comment. And that is also true. He gives us hope and he is our hope. And I wonder if he gives us hope because he is our hope. Maybe the most maybe they're the young. Maybe they're not the same. That's your study. <laughs> That's your study. I'm gonna see if anybody bow their head and close their eyes.